Welcome to another installment of Unraveling Religion. I'm your host, Joel Alessis, and I'm here with Sister Grace Miller. Okay, I'm known as Sister Grace Miller, but my real name is Grazia Maurina Mierolo. I'm Italian. My grandfather came from Italy and arrived at Ellis Island, and he had no money. He was penniless. And he walked all along the railroad tracks to Corning, New York, about over 200 miles. You know, he walked it. When he arrived at Co- in Corning, at the, uh, and he was there on the railroad tracks, he applied for a job uh-huh. with the railroad. And he was denied the job because he was Italian. Yeah. So he changed the name Mietolo to Miller. I've always wanted to go back to my Italian name because that's who I really am. You sure, know? yeah, yeah. And, uh, I, that well, makes sense. I'm really Grazie Maria Vieto. I go by Grace Miller. <laughs> makes sense. Well, what a difference, huh? But, Sister Grace, I wanted to just start today by asking Amazing Grace, the, your book, mm-hmm. g- gave the synopsis and, the, and what I've read, gives a fascinating account of your spiritual and religious sort of like perspective. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about that. Well, you know, I grew up in Corning, and in Corning, there's we were in the valley where the railroad tracks are, uh-huh. where my where my grandfather landed, yeah. and he got a house right on that street, yeah. and then he eventually moved, and all the relatives came and lived in that house, and then as they came, he went out and looked for another house, so relatives moved to the north side, mm-hmm. we were on the south side of town, and my my family inherited that house. My father inherited the house on Water Street. So, Water Street was in the valley, where it was surrounded by the railroad tracks on one side and the river, Shimong River, on the other. It was a, it was a street of all Italians, and there was poverty. There yeah, was poverty. Yeah. But I didn't know, I, was, I didn't realize we were poor until I got to like eighth grade, when mm-hmm. I began to sense uh, prejudice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it took a while to think because there was so much love in our family. Mm-hmm. And my mother, my parents, they were loving parents. In the street, we were all like one family. Eleven families on the street, but we were like one family. Mm-hmm. If there was a wedding, everybody was involved. And yep. there was a funeral, everybody cried. You know, it was that kind of a community. I grew up, I guess, in poverty, but not really real, real, realizing it because there was so much love, you know. So I went to St. Mary's Grammar School. And there were Sisters of Mercy teaching there. You know, when I got seventh and eighth grade, I thought, you know, maybe I'd be religious. And then our senior, I have a twin brother, Father Neil, and um, he, when we were seniors in high school, he said he was going to be a priest. And we're twins, you know, so I said, well, if you're going to be a priest, I'm going to be a nun. Uh. <laughs> so he went right to the seminary, yeah. and I went to Nazareth College for two years. You did, yeah. And, um... Then there was um, the chaplain of the college. My sophomore year, he called me into his office. He said, um, well, are you going to be a religious? I said, well, you told me last year, you know, not to think about it. He says, well, I'm afraid you're going to lose your vocation. Mm. So he told me that was the year to really think seriously about it. And I took the Vena book and I knelt before the statue of St. Joseph. And then I thought, no, Joe, I can't. Um, I'll become a sister of mercy. Mm. Now that's probably because I, you know, I, I was taught by the sisters of mercy. The seed was planted long ago, right? Yeah. And, and you know, the, that's the whole thing. The seed is planted. We don't even know it. You know, you question what, what you question why, but 
ultimately God is in the plan. So I checked out the Sisters of Mercy and I entered. And because I was, uh, because I had two years of college, they sent me out teaching right away. Uh-huh. And I taught it. The first school I taught it was a city school, which was okay. I remember my first year when the, in the second grade, at the end of the year, all the kids were, some of the kids were crying, and I thought, why are they crying? They didn't want to go, they didn't want school to end, you know, they, they always stayed in my mind in school to end. But anyways, um, so I entered the, so they sent me out teaching, and, and the first, I mean, I enjoyed teaching. I was there for about four years, and they sent me to a suburban school. Uh, I think when I look back, then I was sent to an inner city parish, Mount Carmel at that time. Uh Uh-huh. I loved it. It was in the city. Your heart knew. I knew. So I wrote her a letter and said, I love it here. I've come home. I never want to change or move. Well, she sent for me. Mm. She was reassigning me. This meant I would have to leave Mount Carmel Parish. So I went back to the convent, and then I wrote a letter. I said, I can't. I've got to stay here because I saw the poverty mm-hmm. in the neighborhood. And, you know, I visited homes, and I saw one family where they had, you know, there was a bed, but no sheets, no blankets, nothing on the real poverty, you know. Um, and um, so I didn't want, I wanted to stay there and work with the poor. Yeah. Um, so when she told me that I had another assignment, I wrote her letter, her letter and said, I can't. Yeah. I, I just love it here. Yeah. Well, then she <laughs> sent for me and reminded me. I took a vow of obedience. <laughs> she had to remind me. Yeah. Uh, they had opened up the Office of Urban Ministry, and which was a um, Catholic priest and a Protestant minister who were starting a ministry in the city uh, to work with the poor and, and make changes yeah. um, in, in the system. And um, so the priest had, had spoken to the Sisters of St. Joseph to send one sister, and the Sisters of Mercy to send one sister. So I was a sister chosen. Mm. And I believe it was, I mean, when I look back now, I'm sure it had to do with that letter I sent her saying, mm. you know, I wanted mm-hmm. to work with the poor. So we started, and, um, you know, you think you know where you're going or where you should go. Forget, <laughs> it. <laughs> Forget it. But at that time, the fight organization had formed. Mm. And... I found myself gravitating to the flight organization, which was, which was the Black Militant Organization, uh-huh, uh-huh. and it was nearby. Yeah. So when they couldn't find me, <laughs> they knew where I was. Yeah, yeah. But I always say that it was fight that helped me to grow up, mm. because I saw the poverty in the city. I saw the racism. I saw how the, the effects of poverty. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And at that time, I didn't think that way, but I look back, I yes, yeah. you know. Um, and I saw people who were desperately poor join the protests and the demonstrations to make changes, you know, to get jobs for, for the poor and uh, improve the educational uh, system uh, and uh, work for housing. Mm-hmm. And I saw how fight, you know, with the, they would form. Um, they would form these demonstrations. They could get thousands of people that could join yeah. them for these demonstrations at yeah. that time and go to Kodak and Xerox and demand jobs. Yeah. And I learned that how to protest and how demonstrations work. And I was in all of the demonstrations. I was always with all of them. So 
Um, and I think that's where I, I, I saw a lot of the poverty and I saw how it could be fought. Yeah. Um, we really wanted to be eradicated, but it's going to be a lifetime process. Yeah, you know? yeah. Maybe yeah. one day you're hoping you pray. Yeah. You know? So I was with uh, Fight and um, the Office of Urban Ministry for about 10 years, and then I thought, well, maybe it's time to move on to something else. So I went to Catholic University for a year in the summer and um, took courses in political science and um, religious studies and um, social sociology. Yeah. And um, then I was in Washington, D.C., so I went to visit all the universities there. Oh, yeah, yeah. And um, I liked Washington, D.C. I was going to stay there. Oh, yeah, I thought, I'm, I, I'm going to stay here. I like it here. Oh. <laughs> but then I got a letter. Um, from the diocese saying they wanted me to come back and work in an inner city parish. How interesting. Yeah. Mm, so I knew I had to come back. And uh, it was at St. Bridget's Church um, at that time. It was, um, And the parish was dying. Mm. And um, But it was in the midst of poverty yeah. in the black and Hispanic population. And uh, surrounded by all these high rises and <clears throat> apartment dwellings. So I went to St. Bridget's, and that first Christmas, we only had six people at Mass. Oh. So we decided, our staff decided we would visit every single house in the neighborhood, every single apartment and all those high rises, yep. um, and invite people to our next Christmas Midnight Mass. So we had, we baked loaves of bread. I did it at Mercy High School. In the morning, the loaves were about this high, and <laughs> by nighttime, they couldn't pull the out of the oven. And so we wrapped those up, and we had little notes, and inviting people to come to Midnight Mass at the at St. Bridges. Yeah. St. Bridges. Yeah. We went to every single apartment. Every, yeah. We didn't miss anyone. And then as we were walking the streets, people would ask for the bread. We would give them the bread, too, you know. Yeah. So... That, min- that Christmas, which was our second Christmas day, we had over 200 people. Sister Grace, it's amazing. Yeah, and the parish grew. And uh, there were people who didn't have jobs and, co- and um, Pepsi-Cola and Coca-Cola and the Genesee. Uh-huh. So we went to each one of them, and we um, begged for jobs for our people. Mm-hmm. And um, some people got jobs, and wow. they were so happy. They were- and we started a mass every Sunday. There must Sunday. have been like yeah, a deep oh pride, yeah. I had the people get up... Um, you know, during the uh, after the homily, they would get up and tell them how how what they did, and how they got these jobs. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Um, they were so delighted to get these jobs, and mm. so happy. Mm-hmm. And people were really happy. We had um, religious education, and uh, the parents came as well as the children. Mm-hmm. And the numbers grew over a hundred people. You know, would mm-hmm. come to it, and people came to mass, and you know, it was really, it was really booming. It was really, um, really grew. Yeah. It shows about the mystical aspects of Christianity, too. And you, you, as I look at you, you have a little twinkle in your eye. <laughs> Is it the Sermon on the Mount? Is that Would that be relevant? Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, living the Sermon on the Mount, that's what we're asked to do. Yeah. I mean, it's really... They, if they know that someone really and truly loves them yeah. and is serious about it, about loving them and caring for them, and showing that love, 
and reaching out in any way to help them get on their feet. That speaks volumes for our people. And that's what the House of Mercy is all about. Yeah. Yeah, we're a House of Mercy. And, um, you know, we have um, 82 beds. We serve over 465 people a day with breakfast, lunch, and dinner oh, and yeah. snacks in between. Yeah. And the meals are for our homeless, but also for people in the community. Yeah. So many people in the community will come in and eat. Mm. And they'll come in during the day, too, you know, mm -hmm. just to socialize. Yeah. So we're a community yeah. as well as um, a homeless shelter. A beautiful community. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yes. You know, working in the inner city and with the uh, social ministry and fight, of course, I'd be driving many times at nighttime. Yeah. And um, I would run into homeless people on the streets. Yeah. And I would stop and pick them up and take them to homeless shelters. And I was shocked when the homeless shelters refused to take them in. I thought, how oh, good, they're homeless shelter, why are they refusing? And this kept going on and on, and then there was one bad winter. The weather was horrible, and deep snow and blizzard-like weather. And um, it was so bad that some of the churches opened up their basements for, mm -hmm. the, for the homeless. Yeah. So I was driving around at night, and, um, and I, saw a homeless, I saw a person on the street trudging through the snow. Yeah. And I thought, he's going to freeze to death. Oh. And then I saw where he was heading, because nearby was one of the churches that had opened, was opening up its basement. Yeah, yeah. And there were some homeless people, there were some homeless people standing outside. Yeah. And I thought, well, why don't they open up earlier? It's so bad outside, which they didn't do. So I took all the men, put, put them in my car <laughs> to keep them warm, oh. and then drove around the city, came back, went downstairs into the basement, and I said, I have some homeless men, would you take them in? Yeah. And again, I was shocked. They said, no, they would not take them in. Oh. And I, I thought, how could they do this? And I saw there was plenty, they said there was no room, but there was plenty of room. You know how the church base was out. Yeah. There were yeah. there was plenty yeah. of room. So I begged them, and they said no. So I asked them, will you please call another shelter, see if they'll take them in. So they called another shelter, and they said no, they were full. Wow. So I begged them to take the men in. They didn't. I begged again. They took one. So I didn't want them to call another ch church because it's too easy over the telephone to refuse. Sure. You know, so I just took them in and we went to another church basement and um, I went downstairs. I said, look, I have someone who's would you take them in? And they said, no, they were full. But I saw there was plenty of room. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, by that time, I had had it. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I'm not leaving unless you take them in. Mm -hmm. So they didn't want me hanging around, you know, so they took them in. Wow. But that night, I could go home and relax knowing that they were all taken care of. Yeah. Because I would not have been able to sleep at night, you know. Yeah. But then it struck me that there needs to be a place in the city that's open 24 hours, yeah. 7, 24. We'll take people in any time yeah. of day, night, whatever the need. So it was like a seed planted. But I have no money. Uh -huh. <laughs> and I thought, oh, wait a minute, I'm a sister of mercy. <laughs> I'll go to mercy and ask them for the money. So I submitted a proposal, and it passed 20 to 4. So I went around looking for a place. I wanted a big place because I knew you know, there were many homeless. I couldn't find one, but two years later, we went into a bigger building. Uh, yeah. 1994, we moved to Hudson Avenue for the Hudson. bigger building. Yeah. And now we're here in this building. Because yeah. now we have 82 beds. We would have people sleeping in the kitchen, 
wherever there was room, wherever there was So space. that there was a roof over people's heads. Yeah, right. In, yeah. in the main office and the main lobby, I, people, we had people there on the floor on, on, or on cots. And um, look, basically, you know, on the floor in blankets. And then our lounge was filled with um, couches and chairs, and people were sleeping in those. Even our conference room. Mm. I mean, all the rooms were filled with homeless people. And I thought, well, I couldn't believe you know, what was here, um, again, saw God's work, you know, and I, when we first moved in this building, I used to walk all the time I'd go there and look, and I couldn't believe what I saw, you know, uh-huh. a huge place for our homeless, and people yeah. love it, Yeah. you know, and the first, um, when we moved in, two men, two homeless men said, well, this is like a palace, mm. and uh, they said they were going to change their lives around. People just need a chance yeah, sometimes, you know. Yeah, it, yeah. Really, it really affected them. And uh, so they slept that night in the beds, and next day they got up, and some were saying, oh, this was the, the best best night I ever had in mm. years, you know. And um, people just kept coming and coming. We, we had like 149 people come, yeah. you know, because uh, we don't turn people away. We're yeah. going to take them in, and we they know we love them. Yep. We want to live out mercy and compassion, yep. the Beatitudes, yep. you know, um, and, you know, Matthew 25, I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. And just living the life of Christ here, accepting every person that comes as Christ himself. Yeah. You know, yeah. and I always say to our people, the person sitting in front of you is Jesus. Yeah. How are you going, how would you oh. treat Jesus? That's yeah. the way you treat that person in front of you. Yeah. You know, um, and I believe very uh, strongly in compassion, um, love, loving our people, caring for them, helping them to get on their feet. We have many who are mentally ill. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because we're, we've taken the people that nobody else wants. Yeah. Uh, but they're all God's people. Yeah. You know, so we, and they know they're accepted, they know they're loved, and they know that we're going to keep them here. They don't have to worry about what's going to happen to them in the future. We meet with them, and, you know, they're struggling, and they know they have. Mm-hmm. Sickness, but they also know they're loved and they're accepted. Yeah, yeah. and uh, they're God's they're God's children. Yeah. We are, yeah. you know. And really, there's no distinction because we all have something wrong with we're us. All touched, we're <laughs> all touched. We're all touched. All of us do. So there's yeah. no way we can look upon anybody's being inferior to us because uh-uh. we all have something to work on. We certainly you know? do. Yeah. Um, and really, they are a gift. Yeah, they are a gift. I encourage people when they come in here to, to meet with me to tell me their stories. Mm. Yeah, and they self-medicate, right? They can't. T- they can't take it. Yeah. You know, and that's that's what happens to a lot of our people. You listen to their stories, and you know the judgments can't make can't be made on our people. Um, they don't want to be the way they are. They don't want to be homeless. You know, um, but it's not. It's not their fault. You know, one of the things we when we opened up the House of Mercy in 1985, October 1st, 1985. Their first month, over 600 people flocked to the House of Mercy. Oh, wow. And the numbers kept increasing increasing. And so we did a lot of the advocacy, making sure people, they had no money, no housing, or they were being evicted, or their electricity was shut off, or they had no doctor, had no medical insurance. They weren't even seeing doctors. Yeah. yeah. You know, there was a man living in a tin hut. Didn't know how to, you know, winter came. He ended up coming to the House of Mercy, mm. living with us, and he died at the House of Mercy. But oh. well, the other thing that, that hit us was our people were dying left and right 
um, from that property. In two weeks, we had like five funerals. Wow. And we did the funerals. Yeah. And in um, three months, we had 25 funerals. And um, we didn't make any difference what religion, just we had the funerals there. People were so grateful. Because we buried our people, um, yeah. I had no idea what yeah. You know, I look at my life. You, you said you read the book. Mm-hmm. Um, things happened in my life that, you know, for five years I was just floundering. I didn't know what it was. I was fired twice. And a sister being fired, you know, is not very popular, right? You know, so... And then I went to a program in um, Texas, San Antonio, Texas. I went there to this program for sisters, and it was like a several, it was in the summertime, so it was like a, almost two months long. I was lost. You know, I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. And um, I was in the program, but they were teaching at St. Mary's University, which was nearby. Um, there was a course in Old Testament on the prophets, uh-huh. and I signed up for the course. Mm-hmm. And that's when I found my life again. Uh-huh. When I saw how the prophets spoke and what they said, uh-huh. it, I thought, oh, this is it. This is it. The prophets had a tough life, and they were like outcasts. But then they went out and they were, and I think that's when I found myself. Yeah. Um, that the margins, the margins are a place where something deeper and more lasting emerges from us as right. people. You know, and then as I look back, you know, I, I view what happened to me. And someone told me I had like six different lives. <laughs> you know, and I look back, and I can see I didn't know where I was going, uh-huh. but the Lord knew. Yeah, God was directing me, leading me, shutting doors, shutting doors, exactly. I found the homeless and the homeless shelter. Yeah. And never in my life that ever dreamed this is what I would be doing, but this is where the Lord led me. Oh. And it, it says we have to be open to the Spirit of the Lord. You know, when it seems like maybe we've reached our dead end and there's no hope, there is hope. Mm-hmm. Because the Lord is still with us and the Lord is leading us to go to places we never even ever imagined. Yeah, better than we could imagine. Oh, better. I mean, I never dreamt I'd be working in a homeless shelter. Yeah. You know, they, I mean, I wasn't even thinking that years ago. Yeah. Uh, I knew I wanted to help people. Yeah. You know, and I wanted to work with the poor. Yeah. You know, but I... Yeah. Uh, the Lord was leading me here. Yeah. And... Such a deep impact. Such right, a deep and I didn't impact. know it, yeah. but, I, but I had to follow the Holy Spirit. The Lord yeah. Within my life the Lord yeah. Lead me, even when I thought, I don't know where I'm going, I don't know what I'm doing, but the Lord is leading me. I use different language for it, but that mm-hmm. intuitive that intuitive component is the Holy Spirit. It is. It doesn't it's matter what you call it. It's, it's common to all human right. beings. Yeah. Everybody oh. has it. And I tell our people all the time, listen to the Holy Spirit within mm-hmm. you. God speaks to you. Listen to oh, it. Yeah. You know, I tell them that all the time. Um the Lord is leading you. You know, your lives have not come to an end. Mm-mm. You know, the Lord is going to lead you to greener pastures. And I t- I, it is just listening to the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit be your guide. We don't know what's what's best for us. Mm-mm. But God Mm-mm. does. Yeah. God knows what is best. And leave it in God's hands. <laughs> Put ourselves in God's hands, you know, and give ourselves over and say, Okay, Lord, you lead me. You know you know what's best for me, you know where to lead me. 
give me the grace to follow that. Huh. You know, it's, um, we don't know. I mean, I never in my life would ever have imagined I'd be here. Yeah. In a homeless shelter. Uh-huh. I wasn't even thinking of it at one time in my life. All I knew was I was lost for a period there, and I really thought there was no future for me. Yeah. Don't give up. The Lord is still with you. Yeah. But listen to where the Lord is leading you. Yeah. The Lord is guiding you. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, what I want to leave people with is never get discouraged. Never give up hope. There is a silver lining, and the silver lining is the Lord is guiding you. Yeah. Listen in your hearts. Listen to what the Lord is saying. So many times we block out the voice of the Holy Spirit. I we tell do, our people, yeah. you know, don't go to drugs and alcohol and liquor and you can't you can't follow the spirit yeah. within you. Listen to that spirit who is within you because that's the person that is guiding you. That's the Lord in your life. Yeah. And the Lord will guide you, but you have to be aware of it and listen to the Lord's voice and follow. Mm. And don't be afraid to follow. Yeah. You know, there'll be rough roads ahead, but in the long run, you're doing what the Lord wants you to do. You'll be where the Lord wants you to be. And that's where you will find your fulfillment, yeah. your happiness. We'll never have complete happiness if we don't do that. Right. And seeds are often planted through difficult circumstances oh, that yes. in hindsight, we can see how the Lord utilizes us. Yeah. There's a seed planted in our lives, and we may not know where it's going to take us, where it's going to lead us. But if we follow the Lord in our life, that seed will grow and will lead us to where we should be. In the end, those rough roads will prove fruitful. Mm -hmm. And we'll understand why later on mm -hmm. certain things happen in our lives. Yeah. You know, when I was fired twice, I thought, well, there's nothing left in life for me. You know, who's going to hire? Nobody wanted to hire me. I thought, well, this is the end of my life. <laughs> but it wasn't. It was really the beginning uh. of a new life. But it took time. It took time. It takes faith to know that we're not struggling alone. We're not walking the road alone. That the Lord is walking with us and guiding us. And all we have to do is rest in the arms of the Lord and say, all right, Lord, you lead me. Yeah. You know, that's it. I, I feel our, our spirits are akin in this way of viewing that God is the the orchestrator for us. Oh, yes. Which is my motto. My will be done. I, I think of it often. I think yeah. of it often. You know, but I often, I think, too, when I think people, you know, when you study Scripture, you see how Jesus walked the dusty roads of Jerusalem, Samaria, uh, and he was criticized by the authorities, those who supposedly knew, thought they knew more than Jesus knew, and criticized him for doing the work that he did yeah. on the dusty roads, yeah. curing the sick, yeah. you know, giving life to the uh, to, to those who have died, uh, giving sight to the blind and hearing. Yeah, that's where Jesus was, and I think we're called to walk in the footsteps of Jesus as he walked those dusty roads, as the prophets before him did. Right, right, yeah. right. But you have to carry on for me. And that's what he asked us to do. We are his apostles. You know, we are to continue his work on this earth. No, but there is the other side of, of our responsibility, too, to fight for justice for all people. Mm. You know, um, to fight the system yep. that keeps our people oppressed. 
and those systems are heavy and they're hard and today we're in real dire straits you know in our world with the way the world is going um, you know, I want to share this phrase that came to me a long time ago but that poverty is systemic violence it is systemic violence you can see it because it's directed right against the poor yeah i mean it's like the poor can't lift themselves up because the system is constantly putting them down um in every aspect of their lives you know look for housing they can't find housing look for jobs they're not given jobs uh they're homeless around the street they want to give up uh but they would not be there if there wasn't this upper power right. power structure that keeps them down so that they can make more and become more powerful and more wealthy. And then the racism, it's against uh, black, brown, Jews, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Asians, I mean, yeah. every day. And then you see the killings and the killings of the streets and horrible, it's horrible. But that's because the poor are not cannot receive the same education as the wealthy. Yeah. You know, and the same with housing and jobs. And if they don't become educated, many of them won't find jobs. Yeah. Um, but in the inner city, I had to go out of my way to really help them. Yeah. To feel loved and wanted. Yeah. And wanting to learn. But they would get excited just to see their papers on the wall. Mm-hmm. You know, you mm-hmm. I put something they did on the wall. Oh, they were late, but they were so yeah. happy. They come. Oh, look, my paper is hanging. Yeah, you know, I did so much for them. Yeah. Um, and then after school, you know, talking to them and visiting them, visiting yeah. their homes, and so we, you know, the educational system has to change. Yeah. Um, well, then I think, why did I have that education and they don't have this? It isn't fair. Yeah. You know, everybody should have that opportunity for a good education but our our children here do not have it I'm again and again touched by in our conversation how the love that you received in your family you've extended out into the community as if we are all one human family yeah so if people listen to this and they want to make donations to House of Mercy I know socks oh socks underwear underwear uh, sneakers right now. Sneakers. Oh, I guess we need sneakers right now for and then, women. Winter, winter jackets. Winter jackets. Winter jackets, gloves. Gloves. And boots. And boots. Yeah. Okay. But to, and the other thing, to have them come and ask for them, and they're right in my office, it's easy just to give it to them. Mm-hmm. And the joy, the way they had to say thank you. Because mm-hmm. um, they didn't have them. Mm-hmm. They didn't have them. Winter clothes, things we take for granted. Yeah. Dorothy Day made a statement. Um, if you have two coats, you stole one from the poor. It's, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and Catherine McCauley, who's the founder of the Sisters of Mercy, and that's her picture up there. Yeah. In Dublin, Ireland. Oh, okay, yeah. I yeah, see she has started the Sisters of Mercy, and she, um, she would see the poor in the streets. And when she started the order of the Sisters of Mercy, she said, go out into the streets and the highways and byways and bring all the poor in. Mm. They need help today, mm. not next week. And that's why it was so important to us to have the have everything they needed right here. You know, we can never give up on our people, and we don't want them to give up on themselves. No, yeah. it seems the same thing, right? Yeah. For yeah. S- someone to believe in themselves, sometimes exactly. they need someone to believe in them. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And they'll do volumes. You yeah. know, they'll be here for a while. Then they'll go out and find an apartment and so happy about it. Yeah. You know, well, I'm in my apartment now. You know, yeah. they're so happy about yeah. it. Maybe their first apartment, you know, yep. because they've been on the streets for so long, and, you know, 
so our society has a lot to learn still and after all these years still has a lot to learn about how to treat our poor how to treat our citizens our community members our friends and treat them like they're human beings yeah you know mm. and the agencies are there to help them yeah and yet you're going to make this person feel less a human when your job is to help this person yeah you know it's attitudes need to change they really do you know? yeah because that love covers everything. Just do unto others. Yeah, yes, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And love is the limit. And there are no limits with and love. love. <laughs> it's unconditional. So yeah, so love is the limit, but there are no limits. So, but love will love will change the world. It's so true. Everybody has a story to tell. <laughs> yeah, really. Sister Grace, thank you so much.